Welcome to Traveling Culturati, where we explore cultures and share travel news, travel tips, destinations, and travel chats. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Well, hey there, fellow Culturati. Javon Harley here, your host and travel pro for Traveling Culturati. You know what to do. Head on over to the website, TravelingCulturati.com. So you will always be the first to know when we're on the go. We also share our travel experiences on social media, so connect with us there. The travel industry is always exciting in one way or another, and there are many aspects to it. It's much more than getting there and enjoying a fabulous destination, which is why each month I'm joined by healthcare professional Yolanda Como with healthy travel topics and tips for safe and healthy travels. She'll be here today. We've also got Javon's Travel Minute and the culture report. But now let's get into some travel news and information. Today, I wanna take a look at how travel has changed over the years, 20 plus years, maybe even a little bit more, from the price of an airline ticket to how small the world has gotten and whether or not we're all the better for it. Let's start with what I know and experienced since I started my career in the travel industry, which was actually much more than 20 years ago, but let's not split hairs over that or reveal my grace. (laughs) Well, let's start with American Airlines. They were the first to introduce computerized reservations and ticketing for real-time access. That was in 1952. This was only available to the airline industry, however. It wasn't until 1964 that computer systems were available to travel agencies and 1994 when the e-ticket came to be. Before the e-ticket, paper tickets were issued and were an airlines and travel agents nightmare because people used to lose their tickets all the time. You had to pay a fee to have a new one reissued. So it was costly for the traveler as well. And then the OTAs, the online travel agencies, came on the scene. In a nutshell, it was in 1995. Internet Travel Network sold the first airline ticket via the World Wide Web. In October of 1996, Expedia.com, funded with hundreds of millions of dollars by Microsoft, launched as the first large online travel agency. But of course, a lot happened before that happened. Bob Diener and Dave Littman started selling hotels through a call center and built a powerhouse that became Hotels.com. American Airlines and its Sabre system unit created Travelocity with Terry Jones at the helm. Jay Walker came up with the name your own price idea for selling discounted flights, hotels, mortgages, and new cars, and they launched Priceline.com. Microsoft's Rich Barton became the founder of Expedia. Four major U.S. airlines decided to be very discriminating about which site would get access to their web-only fares and enrolled as the founders of Orbitz.com and then Priceline's Glenn Fogel spotted European hotel distributor Bookings B.V which everyone else seemed to be blind to and acquired it. So I have a bit of a personal history and story on the onset of an OTA. The company I worked for up until 1998 was an airline consolidator. One day, a couple of years before the company closed, an IT group approached us to buy tickets from us using a system they were working on. And after working with them for about a year, they were successful in obtaining their own own airline contracts and that company later became Priceline.com. So there you have it. Now travel agents had to refer to books for information on airlines and hotels before all the technology and OTAs and automation and all of that. The airline tariff and schedule was called the OAG. That was an airline guide. And the hotel guide was called 
hotel and travel index. These were huge books that we had to comb through to book and to find locations and hotels and then either call or telex them for the reservation. <laughs> Can you believe that? Telex, that was like a typewriter that sent a telegraph and that gave way to the facsimile. Yes, we called it a facsimile then before it was abbreviated to fax. And then there was no color printing. The fax machine used carbon ink cartridges and thermal paper. So talk about how messy that was. These carbon ink cartridges, you had to install them properly, otherwise you'd get ink all over you. And the paper roll that you fed through the fax machine was thermal so that over time <laughs> that ink or that imprint would disappear. Let's take a look at another timeline that has had major impact on travel. 1994, Eurostar launched as the Channel Tunnel opens between Great Britain and France. And Southwest Airlines issued its first airline ticket. Yeah, 1994. 1995, the abroad low-cost carrier was born, EasyJet. And then the Shenzhen arrangement pioneers border-free travel around Europe. Remember before, if you were driving, crossing those borders each way, passports, all of that, well, then those countries got together and eliminated that for a lot of European travelers. And of course, the world at large benefited from it as well. As we mentioned before, 1996 was the advent of Expedia and of course the reign of OTAs or online travel agencies. 1998, can you believe this? British Airways completely bans smoking across all flights. And I'm gonna talk about smoking on board a little bit later. In 2000, finally smoking ban occurred on all flights on US-based carriers. Some implemented partial bans prior to 2000. And in 2002, the euro enters into circulation. And again, that's something I'm going to talk about a little bit more in depth in a little bit. 2004, Facebook debuts. Also, Google Maps in 2005. 2007, double-decker Airbus 380s arrive in the sky and Amazon introduced Kindle. And that's the first e-reader to achieve widespread commercial success. 2008, the age of Airbnb begins. 2010, Instagram starts. And 2012, international tourist arrivals surpass 1 billion globally for the first time. So you can see how travel has really changed over the past, let's say three decades. Now, let's take a deeper look. As I said before, the golden age of travel was called the golden age of travel because airplanes were open with comfy seats, full service for all, food served on China, lounge areas, sofas or couches, whichever one you say, on board. And of course, the price of the average airline ticket was about 40% higher than what we pay today, but probably well worth it. Other than first class, which is for a small percentage of flyers today, the golden age of travel probably will never return. That was in the 1960s. People got dressed up to fly. In most cases, prices have gone up except for air travel, which is roughly 30 to 40% less than it was decades ago. The biggest catalyst for less expensive airfares was the deregulation of the airline industry in the late 70s, early 80s. This also meant service was deregulated too. Now, of course, one big catalyst for change in travel is technology. The advent of the smartphone has changed everything. The apps you use to get directions, food orders, car service, check in for your flight, take photos and make calls free and overseas and text messaging. We email, we Skype, WhatsApp, or we text. So 
Those of you who don't remember, calling long distance and especially internationally was very expensive. So you would call someone collect, but you had an arrangement ahead of time to say, I'm going to call you when I arrive, collect. You decline the collect call because they would announce who the call is from. And then that was your way of saying I've arrived safely. Well, no need to do that anymore. The other thing that came on the scene was the selfie. That became a big thing along with the selfie stick. But unfortunately for some accidents and hospital visits ensued after not watching where we're going. Some very serious incidents have occurred with the selfie and most museums now have banned the selfie stick because they were damaging or they were getting in people's way and people were fighting. That brings me to the GPS. That's another app that really changed. You rarely see anyone use a paper map anymore. Although I do recommend one, or at least printed directions for a road trip. So if you've ever been on a road trip and you're using GPS and you hit a dead zone, lost service, then you understand exactly what I'm talking about. But remember before GPS was all on our phones, we had the separate GPS device <laughs> that we had in our cars. We plugged into our cigarette lighter. And remember I mentioned the Euro in the timeline as of 2002? Well, actually the Euro launched in January 1999, January 1st to be exact. But for the first three years, it was invisible and only used for accounting. It was introduced to the public on January 1, 2002. And gone was the Lira of Italy, the Pesetta of Spain, the Deutschmark of Germany, and 16 other European countries' individual currency. Only 19 of the 27 European Union countries use the Euro but it certainly has made it easier and less cumbersome to deal with so many currencies traveling through Europe, albeit more expensive because the Europe is a lot stronger against the dollar than those individual currencies were. Now, the advent of Airbnb in 2008 wasn't the first time we rented homes versus hotels. Europe especially always had apartments, what they call for let. And many people, particularly those with long-term stays, used them. However, before Airbnb, there was house swapping or home sharing. Airbnb just makes it more mainstream. So another was the launch of social media. Even though you can still find and many people still do buy postcards, there isn't much need to mail them anymore. Some people just do it for nostalgia. I have a traveler I have to shout out to, the savvy traveler, <laughs> who always sends me a postcard when he's traveling. So I wanna shout out to you and let you know I do appreciate them, you checking in, especially with a little nostalgia of the places that you're traveling to. So now all you have to do is post to social media for immediate envy and communication of your travels. What would be a trip? without that Instagram-worthy photo. Actually, some destinations have become iconic because of Instagram photos. Well, as you can see, a lot has changed and more changes are certain to come, especially post-pandemic. Remember, after each major event that affects or interrupts the travel industry, changes are made, some temporarily and some permanent, like 9-11 and the airport and airline rules that are now permanent parts of our flying experience. There's sure to be both temporary and permanent changes as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's see what they will be in the years to come. Well, that's all I've got for travel news and information. I've truly enjoyed this walk down memory lane. When I come back, we'll have Javon's Travel Minute, healthcare professional Yolanda Como with tips for healthy and happy travel. So don't go anywhere. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Make sure you visit the website, TravelingCulturati.com and connect with me on social media and make sure you join that travel club. And now, Javon's Travel Minute. 
Make your list and check it twice. Traveling for me is about being efficient, organized, and compact. Honestly, I'm not that way in general, but travel forces me to be more organized when I'm on the road. Getting organized is simple, and as you travel more, you realize your needs and those things that make travel more comfortable for you. You then adjust and add those things to your list. Lists are an important task for organized travel. These are the lists you should have and follow. A traveler's checklist for the things you need to do in preparation of your trip. A packing list for the things you need to pack. An RX list for the basic medical needs. Think over-the-counter medications and those small mishaps that require minor medical attention. Electronics list for all your electronics. This can be part of your packing list as well. A home checklist and a work checklist for the things that need attention during your absence. In this case, you should appoint a go-to person. An emergency contact list, which should include your itinerary and contact details. You should also appoint an emergency contact person. Your overall traveler's checklist should have before, during, and after needs. Those things that need attending to while you're gone. And it should incorporate the other lists combined. But if you think of them independently, your traveler's checklist will be complete. This is Javon, and that was your Travel Minute. Today, healthcare professional Yolanda Como is here with another installment of Staying Healthy While You Travel. At the top of the list is muscle cramps. What are they? The common causes, how to deal with and prevent them, and more importantly, knowing if there's something more serious than a muscle cramp. Hello, Yolanda, and welcome back. Hi, Javon. Great to be back. How are you? I'm great, thanks. It's been a while. Yes. Yeah, you know, I'm prone to cramping, one, in my hands. I think that's a condition of the arthritis but two sometimes those leg cramps especially on long flights and yeah I got one one time on a flight that got me up out of my seat and I was limping down the aisle (laughs) people were looking at me like I was crazy but I was trying to get the flight attendant's attention like please give me some water Mm. and I was able to walk it out but it is quite painful when it happens, you know, whether you're in the bed at night or on a long flight. Exactly. Well, you did the right thing by asking for water because that's the number one culprit of people suffering with leg cramps, Um, dehydration, not enough hydration in their system. Yeah. And when I travel, that's often when I'm not getting enough. And that's why when I fly, I try to get a large bottle of water because, you know, they come around and give you a little tiny cup that's not enough to quench your thirst, let alone Mm -hmm. fulfill your daily intake requirement of water. So what are we talking about when we say a muscle cramp? So a muscle cramp, also known as um, chally horse, you probably heard that before. It's a strong, painful, involuntary contraction or tightening of the muscle, mostly in the legs. And it lasts for several seconds and sometimes for several minutes, but it's often in the legs. It occurs anytime, but at nighttime, you'll hear people saying, yeah, just like you just said, at night, I'll probably have one while I'm sleeping, it wakes you up. So it's like a sudden spasm of the legs and tightening of the muscles and the calves. Yeah. And I get mine sometimes in the front part of the lower part of my leg. What is that? The shin around that area. And yeah, just kind of trying to rub it out. I know I must have looked crazy because I was trying to walk (laughs) down the aisle, but the leg was cramping so bad that I had to kind of like drag it behind me. Oh my gosh. Like walking down the aisle. And it also just got worse the more I thought about it and the more I tried to stretch it out myself. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it was an interesting thing. So let's talk about some of those causes because I think that a lot of travel conditions cause some of these causes. Exactly. (laughs) Definitely the travel conditions. What you should know is that a lot of times the underlying cause isn't really due by illnesses or diseases, but by things like dehydration and strenuous exercises and also lack of muscle use. Meaning that if you're one of those people who have been down for a while and you're not up and about and having any physical activities, 
you can probably suffer with some leg cramps or some muscle cramps. When you say dehydration, sometimes people think in a more severe term and they may not be thinking of those things that can cause dehydration. I think about the time we were at the U.S. Open and the older gentleman who was in the oh, lounge yes. with us right? and he couldn't get up. So what are those causes of dehydration and thinking about that water intake at what level do we become dehydrated well keep in mind though with dehydration water is very important but you want to also make sure you have electrolytes in your system dehydration is significant body fluid loss which impairs the body functions like if you're overheated meaning if you're overworking yourself in terms of walking around in the sun or you're doing long walks or you're on a long tour or you're lying on the beach think about things like that and you're being overheated also excessive exercising use sport activities and workouts you can really work yourself out and if you're not replenishing your body with fluids and electrolytes you can become dehydrated also if there's an insufficient fluid consumption once again the water water is huge you heard since you were a child probably how many glasses of water should you have a day yeah eight you should have eight and do we really drink that much a day but if you are working out and doing strenuous activities you probably should consider making sure you're replenishing yourself and also, when you are working out, what are you doing? You're having excessive sweating. Right. You used to go to the gym and people are really working hard. They're working out with doing cardio. They're on bikes. They're on treadmills. Make sure you're replenishing yourself. Also, people who take medication, myself, I take a diuretic, you know, management of blood pressure. So what's that going to do? Diuretics, they're going to help pull out fluid from your body. So it's going to allow you to urinate more. Therefore, you're going to be dehydrated if you don't replenish yourself with water and electrolytes. Now, one thing that is kind of self-explanatory is strenuous exercise causing muscle cramps because you can overuse those muscles. But, you know, the other one that I think a lot of people don't think about is the lack of use of muscles and how that can cause muscle cramps. Well, and I put this in because by me working in profession that I work in, a lot of people, they have certain surgery or they're down for a while because of injuries and they're not doing as much like walking around. They're out, you know, because of the injury, they're not going to work. They're not moving about. Their physical activity is very, very minimal. So if they're not going to physical therapy and they're just lying around the house and they're just recovering, depending on how long their recovery period is, then muscle is not being used as often. So it's almost like the atrophy occurs. And when you then start using it, you get those muscle cramps. But there's something else I want to bring to the table. And I think it was first described back in the 40s or 50s, but it's called economy class syndrome. And it's not really just because it's economy class in total, but those seats are smaller than your business or first class. And people tend to get up less when they're in those cramped quarters. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of like what you're talking about with lack of muscle use, but they actually came up with that syndrome, economy class syndrome. And it happens with frequent flyers, but the awareness of it really came to the surface when a 28-year-old woman died of it, claiming Mm. her baggage at London's Heathrow Airport. And she was an amateur athlete and was returning on a 15-hour flight from Sydney to London, where she had attended the Olympic Games. And with her overexertion with the athletic part of it, and then sitting in economy for long periods of time in a cramped situation, she developed economy class syndrome. You probably know in a more medical term as deep vein thrombosis. Yes, deep vein thrombosis. Yeah. You have to move around. And what happens, your blood pools If you're not moving around and being active, that's why you should get up and walk around. And while it's pooling, it's clotting. And while it's clotting, it begins to travel and move upward from the legs and all the way up to the chest area, to the heart and to the lungs. And that's when, unfortunately, people die from this condition. Yes. In in traveler's term or for flying, they called it economy class syndrome. But again, it's deep vein thrombosis. And deep vein thrombosis itself 
is not fatal, but it's if that clot moves, if, if the clot and moves becomes and a pulmonary off. embolism, exactly. that is fatal. So deep vein thrombosis is very, very serious. And you know, that's what heavy D died from. Yes, that's what Harry D died from. And that's what Serena had a condition of while she was on her flight as well. In fact, she developed that even after having her baby. She did. But related to flying, because here, this is a healthy person. This is an athlete. Exactly. But she had surgery prior to that flight Mm -hmm. and again then took a flight so you have the combination of and I'm sure she wasn't in economy class but you have the combination of the altitude you have the combination of being sedentary and maybe not drinking as much fluid at the time and from surgery and she has a condition as well blood clotting. So all of those things combined. Um, and so as she got off the flight and was walking, she, short of she, she was getting short of breath and her breathing was labored and she was rushed to the hospital and she was experiencing pulmonary embolism, which means that deep vein thrombosis had formed a clot and it started moving. Now you book an exit row, a bulkhead or aisle seats if you can. Yes, I try to sit in the exit row all the time. A lot of people like to sit by the window, but that only hampers you to get up. You want to sit over there and be in your corner and not get up as much. But with Serena and any other high-profile person, they sit in the front. Yes, they do have really nice seats, but do they really get up enough? Uh, No, and you should wear loose fitting clothes, nothing that's constricting, and avoid knee-length socks that constrict circulation unless you're getting compression. The compression Um, socks, socks, they're they're wonderful. But even when you're sitting in a seat, you're confined there, you should be doing some kind of leg and foot movements and exercises while you're sitting in that seat. Yeah, airlines, especially on long flights, I don't see them on short flights, but on long flights, they will show films for exercising. So if you don't want to get up, and let's say you are stuck in that window or middle seat and you don't want to bother your seatmates, you can raise and lower your legs. You can extend your knees or your legs from your knee. You can bring your knees into your chest. And the best one are those circles with your ankles. You can circle outward, circle back in. So definitely doing those things. And, you know, maybe even travel with one of those balls that you can roll your foot on. Again, it's just to kind of keep that circulation. So those are things you can do in your seat, because here's why it's serious. According to Dr. Moeller, A 1986 study at London Heathrow's airport found that 18% of 61 sudden deaths among long-distance flyers resulted from blood clots. And I know that was some time ago, but still, and I think that number has lowered because we now know a little bit better. We now know, but we do see quite a few patients. You probably don't hear it as much or if it's not reported as much, there's still quite a few people who suffer from deep vein thrombosis from flying. And so so the thing that we want to know too is determining that difference between that cramp and these other things. Is it a cramp or is it a strain? Is it a cramp or is it related to an illness or disease? Or is it a cramp or is it deep vein thrombosis? And that's why we're talking about these things today. So what's the difference between a cramp and a muscle strain? So a cramp is an involuntary forceful muscle contraction that takes a while to relax. Although it would be uncomfortable, sometimes very uncomfortable at times, it feels like an intense grip sensation around your muscle, like maybe your calf. Okay, it's like a dull ache at times. It kind of goes in and out with the feeling, but it's definitely an intense grip. But with the muscle strain, it's the actual muscle fibers that are separating, that are pulling apart, which is very nagging. And your brain is not able to tell those muscles down there to contract. So how do we know the difference in that pain? Well, the pain with the strain is an acute pain, and it feels like a stabbing sensation as opposed to a dull, intense gripping sensation as a cramp would feel. Okay, and you can massage a cramp out or it will go away versus... Versus the cramp. The cramp would take a while. If the cramp is really, really nagging you and just seems to not be going away when it should relax. 
And if it doesn't, then you really should see a physician for that. Okay. With a strain, you definitely should be treated and see someone like a therapist. Right. But certainly if it does go away, then it is a cramp and not a strain. Exactly. Okay. But if not, it's either a severe cramp where you have something lingering and maybe something more serious, but definitely with a muscle strain, it's not going to be something that's just going to kind of fade away. Now, what about illnesses or those diseases that can cause cramping so it's not really a condition of you being dehydrated or not moving and those things. Right. So illnesses such as diabetes, that's a pretty common one because with diabetes, you can develop a lot of other health issues which can throw your body into a situation where you can become dehydrated and you can lose electrolytes. If you have anemia, which has a lot of electrolytes in the blood system. When you lose blood, you become anemic. And that's how you can start feeling like you're dehydrated, especially if you're losing blood, you're losing body fluids. Okay. And then yeah, you're going to have some cramping until you get your body fluids replenished or you may need blood transfusion. Kidney disease, definitely. People who have end-stage kidney disease, oftentimes they're cramping because of their potassium levels or their magnesium levels or their calcium. All of those are electrolytes. And the reason why they lose these electrolytes is because they go on dialysis. Dialysis is a machine they put on and it filters their blood. So it takes the blood from the body system and replenishes it without all of the toxins. So in the interim of doing that, they're losing their electrolytes. So, so it they takes have out to get some them. of those other things too. Exactly. Yeah. And I just want to let you know that with potassium, that's one of the electrolytes that your body cannot replenish on its own. Okay. You have to replenish that yourself. Okay. Okay. So that's why people's diets, they tell you to take in foods that are enriched with potassium. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about the different foods that are enriched with those. People who have endocrine problems, like with thyroids, they suffer from possibly losing important electrolytes as well. And like I said, for myself, I had a thyroid issue. Actually, I had my thyroid removed. But one of the things that was happening, it made my blood pressure so high, I was taking diuretic medication to lower my blood pressure. And at the same time, while I'm lowering my blood pressure and making myself urinate and remove all those toxins out, I was losing electrolytes as well. So certainly if you are dealing with any of these conditions and or diseases and you're traveling, you want to make sure you're taking care of those things and you have those snacks and those things like that on hand Mm -hmm. so that you're not causing those muscle cramps, which in turn can cause other things. So it's definitely good to know what those things are, what they do, and then how you can remedy them. So what are some of those treatments that should be applied? First of all, you need to start stretching and massaging your legs, your calves. When you're drinking water throughout the day, make sure you're drinking enough water. Make sure you're drinking enough before bedtime. A lot of people don't like to drink closer to bedtime. Why? Because they don't want to get up in the middle of the night. But so you don't have these muscle cramps in the middle of the night while you're sleeping, you have to make sure that you are hydrated enough while you're sleeping. Also, if you do get a cramp and it's not going away, you want to just make sure you focus on it and make sure there's no swelling, there's no redness, there's no skin changes. Also, there's no muscle weakness because that can definitely happen if it's long term. Okay. And also frequent symptoms. If you have more and more symptoms that you're noticing because of these cramps, definitely seek out professional medical care for that. And if you feel like there's something that you just can't identify as well, an illness or something that's coming along on you and you just say, is this something new to my body? You may want to go see a physician about that as well, because that can be in relation to why you're having these cramps. And what they do is just draw a basic chemistry lab result to find out what's happening with your electrolytes. Because with electrolytes, it monitors and it maintains the balance of your electrolyte system to make sure that everything is firing to the heart, make sure that your blood system is enriched with them so that you can have 
activity and your muscles are strong enough so that they're not fading away in terms of you getting these cramps. Now, you say electrolytes. What are things that we can do to get those electrolytes? Actually, you can just take it in with fluids. You can take it in with foods, the foods that you eat. Talking about potassium, for instance, potassium-enriched foods like bananas, kale, green leafy vegetables, spinach, oranges, A lot of people do not take in dairy, but milk is actually, you know, really good with potassium and also calcium. So, you know, you should think about the foods. Make sure you're reading the labels when you're shopping to see what is full with potassium. So what are some good snacks that you can travel with to help in that area? In terms of preventing muscle cramps, make sure you have some salty snacks. I know a lot of people want to watch this sodium intake, but nice salty snacks has sodium in it, and that's a nice electrolyte that your body needs, especially when you're traveling. I know you like this emergency. Yeah, you know, that really works. I can tell you this, that time that I was just telling you about the beginning of the segment, when I said that that severe cramp that I was getting, I knew immediately, Javon, you have not been drinking enough water and you didn't take your emergency. So when I got up, I went to the flight attendant. I said, I need about eight bottles of water because they had those shorter bottles. And she gave, I said, no, seriously, I need them. And she gave them to me. And so I put an emergency pack in one of them. And that was the first thing that I drank. And then I drank like two more of those bottles immediately afterwards. And I started walking around and the cramps started subsiding. Mm -hmm. And then I drank all eight of those bottles of water and then the cramps went away. Mm -hmm. But it was the combination, I think, of doing that. Now, there's another trick that I use, and that's mustard. And it works. It It works. works. It does work. And I think it's salty. It has salt in it. So maybe because it has a lot of salt in it, but also mustard is made with turmeric. Mm -hmm. And I think turmeric and vinegar and all of those salty things have a lot to do with it. I'm not a medical professional and I don't know specifically, but that's what I'm guessing. Yeah. And you're not the first one that I've heard say that. And some people take a teaspoon of mustard and they claim that that it acts quickly. Yeah. Their cramps are gone away. But medically and in research, it doesn't show any evidence of that, but it does say that it can hurt you. And at the same time, it probably can't help you. Well, I can tell you that it works for me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And like I said, you're not the first. My mother does it too, and it works for her. And I can tell you without me even stretching, I take one or two tablespoons of mustard Mm -hmm. and within 30 seconds to a minute, it goes away. And again, I think it has a lot to do with the saltiness. I think it has to do with the vinegar. And I think it has to do with the turmeric that's in it. We're almost out of time. And so what I want to do is I think we can maybe put this list on the site. Okay. So that everybody will have access to it. Now, because this isn't unique to traveling, but traveling conditions can certainly exacerbate these muscle cramps or these situations. And whether you're in a car for a long time or on a plane for a long time, you want to make sure that you're taking those precautions. And think about when you return from a trip. That's very important too, because you're not using your muscles as much as you would normally use your muscles. And the worst thing to do, like you said, you might want to relax, but sometimes relaxing isn't the thing you want to do. You want to get moving. Right. And a lot of times when people are traveling, that's the time that they think, this is my vacation, I'm relaxing. But you are going to have to move around people and definitely take advantage of touring and all that too. Yeah. Just to keep the muscles moving. Maybe do some walking tours. Maybe just walk around the block, especially if you're in a city. It's a great place to do some walking. At resorts, they usually have walking trails, but just kind of get that combination of walking. Even like you were saying, just before bedtime, replenishing those fluids. That's usually when I do. I don't like to have to go to the bathroom while I'm out and about during the day. Mm -hmm. So I usually don't drink enough during the day, but I get it first thing in the morning and before I go to bed, because when I'm back in my room, I'm near the toilet and I don't have to worry about it, Mm -hmm. but also just kind of moving around. So muscle cramps, as you said, can come from atrophy as much as overuse and then 
if you have some of those medical conditions that Yolanda talked about earlier, you certainly want to consider those. Yolanda will put together a list of these tips and preventions for treating leg cramps on the Traveling Culturati website for you to take a look at and maybe a takeaway for you. So Yolanda, thanks again. Great topic. Yes, thank you. When we come back, I've got the culture report. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culture Roddy. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Make sure you head on over and check out the website, travelingculturati.com. Well, you know what time it is. It's time for the Culture Report. From the simple American brewed coffee to the gassed up varieties with libations, coffee is a culture that takes up root around the globe. This week's culture report is on the coffee culture, how it's made and enjoyed around the world. Coffee has actually been around since 500 AD in Ethiopia. Between the period of 500 and 800 AD, a leader, Omer Esh Shadanit, took the beans to the port of Mocha in Yemen, where he became known as the Dervish of Mocha. It would be another 1,000 years before coffee would make its way to the rest of the world. In the 11th century, the story begins with Kaldi, a goat herder, who noticed that his goats were a lot more energetic and weren't even sleeping after consuming berries from a certain tree. He then took the berries to a local monastery who boiled the beans to make a drink and they too found they were more energetic. From the monastery and locals in Ethiopia, the world of the energetic drink made from brewed berries made its way to the Arabian Peninsula, where cultivation and trade began. The word coffee is thought to have come from kaffa, the kingdom in Ethiopia where coffee originated. The coffee tree in Ethiopia has a white blossom and a red cherry-like fruit, before it is dried, roasted, and ground into the brew we so love today. It was in the Arabian Peninsula that the coffee culture took hold. They began growing coffee themselves by the 15th century. It was consumed in households and then made its way to public houses, which soon became known as coffee houses. Coffee houses were the center of social activities like music and conversation. Europeans who traveled to the Middle East were introduced to the dark, unusual beverage. They soon fell in love with it and brought it to the European continent, where by the 17th century, coffee was a popular drink across the continent. Venice, however, had its suspicions about this dark brew, and some called it the bitter invention of Satan, and that prompted the local clergy to condemn it. But before long and after condemnation, coffee quickly spread and coffee houses were built and became the central gathering places for social activities there too. Thomas Jefferson called it the favorite drink of the civilized world. Soon afterwards, coffee made its way across the Atlantic Ocean and to the New World. However, it didn't quickly become a favorite drink. Those in the New World were drinking tea. It wasn't until the tax on tea brought about a revolt against the tax, better known as the Boston Tea Party, that coffee even had a chance in America. Large-scale production of coffee would begin with the Dutch, who tried to cultivate the plant in India. That attempt failed, and their efforts were moved to the island of Java, which is now Indonesia and where they had success. That name too has stuck around for the long haul. It was the French who brought the plant to the Americas. The mayor of Amsterdam gifted a coffee plant to the King of France in 1714, who in turn ordered it to be planted in the Royal Botanical Garden in Paris. Later, a naval officer took a seedling from the king's plant and brought it to the island of Martinique. There it thrived and is the parent of all coffee trees throughout 
the Caribbean, South, and Central America today. And today, coffee is consumed in mass quantities and has become part of our daily culture. Let's talk coffee. Turkish coffee. Turkish coffee is served in a demitasse cup. It's a very strong brew that still has grounds in it, so you'll need to let the grounds settle to the bottom. It's also sweetened with sugar and always served with water to cleanse the palate. The grounds are left in the bottom, or you can have your grounds red to tell your fortune. If you want to make it yourself, you'll need a Turkish coffee pot called a sieve. And remember to never boil the water. It should be simmered. The water should be hot enough to extract the coffee from the bean and to melt the sugar. Let's head to Italy, where drinking coffee is a passion. Remember it was in Venice, where it was thought to be the invention of Satan because of its black color and its effects. Well, after getting over that, coffee soon spread to other Italian cities and gave way to the exclusive coffee houses. When in Italy, this is how you should order and drink your coffee. Cappuccino is only to be consumed in the morning with breakfast, never to be ordered after 11 a.m. What we call espresso is ordered as un cafe, and it's typically served with a glass of water. Much like the Turks, you have to cleanse your palate. And if you like to have milk, you would ask for cafe macchiato, which just means milk. You could ask for a double shot of espresso, which is also called cafe doppio, but that wouldn't be very Italian. Instead, order a cafe lungo, which means to make it long by adding hot water. And later in the evening, if you want something with a kick, you'd order a cafe corretto. That comes with a shot of liquor, probably amaretto. Now, how about the French? Theirs is a lot less complicated than the Italians, but still very refined. The French take their coffee with hot milk or cafe au lait, and it's served in a mug, sometimes the size of a bowl and large enough for dunking a croissant or a baguette. The cafe au lait is usually larger in the morning. If ordered in the afternoon, you'll typically get a smaller one. They too have their own coffee pot, the cafeteria or French press. The coffee grounds are served in a glass or aluminum pot filled with hot water. When the grounds have brewed, you press the grounds to the bottom of the pot and then you can have your coffee. Now, let's explore Cuba's coffee culture. Coffee has been a part of the Cuban culture since the 18th century, since the French planters fled Haiti and brought the bean there. Cubans like their coffee strong. There's the Café Cubano or Cafecito. It's espresso mixed with sugar while it's brewed. The Coradito is an espresso topped with steamed milk or Café con Leche, coffee with hot milk and colada. It comes in a larger cup with small accompanying cups for decanting and for sharing. Of course, there is a coffee culture in the place where coffee first landed out of Africa, Arabia, the Middle East, and North Africa. Starting 1,000 years ago, ground coffee was a drink brewed to help the Sufi pray all night. In this part of the world, let's have a cup of coffee together means let's get together to discuss news, mutual interests, and agreements. Bedouins are known for passionate poetry and songs about serving coffee to their visitors mostly before they dismounted their horses. This is known as Finja al-Daif. Coffee, or kawa, is always used to greet in certain parts of the Middle East. In fact, it is said that when a young man is visiting a family and refuses to drink coffee, he may be about to ask for your daughter's hand in marriage or for forgiveness. Arabic coffee prepared in many Arab countries is done with cardamom or it's served plain called kawa, sada, and often served in a small cup and is accompanied by dates. 
Now, Mexico's hot beverage is really chocolate, but in more recent years, Oaxaca has been the center of Mexico's coffee culture with the cultivation of mountain coffee trees. Oaxaqueños have birthed a coffee culture around the Sobra Mesa. This is the period right after a meal when family and friends share conversations or anecdotes at the table. Sobra Mesa can last for hours, so it's no wonder coffee is a necessity. When I think about the American coffee culture, I think about my own experiences. When I travel around, people are astonished by the size of our coffee or the bottomless cup of coffee. But that certainly has changed over the years with the birth of coffee houses. Certainly we love our cup of joe to wake us up in the morning, but the new culture has added the coffee cocktail, if you will, with the caramel macchiato, the pumpkin spice lattes, and many others. For me, I enjoy a triple venti latte from Starbucks. That's a triple shot of espresso and 16 ounces of steamed 2% milk. Ethiopia, the birthplace of coffee. Coffee plays a major role in Ethiopian culture the life, the food, and relationships. It's so significant to the culture, it has its own language. Buna Dabo Nao is a saying in Ethiopia meaning coffee is our bread. Buna Tetu is another common saying meaning, simply put, drink coffee. And it signifies not only drinking coffee, but socializing. If someone says, I do not have anyone to have coffee with, it is assumed that the person does not have good friends they can confide in. And if someone says, don't let your name get noticed at coffee time, that means you should watch out for your reputation and avoid becoming the topic of negative gossip. Then there's the coffee ceremony in Ethiopia a lengthy process that begins with a ritual of spreading fresh flowers across the floor, burning incense to ward off evil spirits. There are three servings of coffee, known as abol, tona, and baraka. Each serving is progressively weaker than the first, and each cup is said to transform the spirit, and the third serving is considered to be a blessing on those who drink it. In searching for coffee cultures around the world, the common nuance is socializing. We all have a tendency to chat over coffee, meet over coffee, or people watch over coffee. I think that's a good thing. Any culture that promotes talking to each other, socializing, and doing more human things in this age of technology that seems to be pulling us apart is a good thing. So I want to thank you for sharing coffee with me today from around the world. Until our next cup, cheers. Well, that's it for the show today. Wherever you go, go with all your heart. Confucius. Ladies and gentlemen. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Ladies and